As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Hello and welcome back to Highway to Hoover, a production of SEC Extra over at D1Baseball.com. I'm your host, Joe Healy. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Mark Etheridge. We are here to do part two of the podcast episode we did a couple of weeks ago, where we looked at Overlook storylines in the SEC East. Today, as you might be able to surmise, we are going to do Overlook storylines in the SEC West. This is probably, and I, I say this without really knowing exactly if this is true, but it's probably our last 2023 centric episode, mm-hmm. kind of putting a bow on the season that was moving forward. We're going to do some, some stuff that more looks forward to 2022. I, I'm excited about that. I know Mark is excited about that. You as a listener, hopefully are excited about that and excited about turning the page. If you're a fan of Ole Miss or Mississippi <laughs> state, I think you're probably very ready to turn the page. So we'll, we'll look ahead in, in the coming weeks, but for today we have one more episode looking back apologies to by the way coming at you two weeks since the last episode more or less two weeks since the last episode i uh was on the cape last week and i know that's it's look it's a tough life <laughs> you know like life is difficult i was watching baseball games on cape cod like it just life doesn't get much harder than that uh, but jokes aside it, the schedules were tough because i was on the road the cape games start relatively early in the day relative to regular spring season games and also hotel Wi-Fi, and you know that mm-hmm. that just happens sometimes. So we're coming at you a couple of weeks after the last episode unintentionally, but but here it is, regardless. Uh, Mark, what do you say we uh, we jump right into this? Let's do um, it. Sound good? Okay. So here's the game. Uh, I, I mentioned it up top, but we are going to look at an overlooked storyline for each SEC West club. So if you did not listen to the SEC East episode, if you're a fan of of an SEC West team specifically. We're just going to go team by team and talk about a story for the for the team specific team that just didn't get as much pub or as much run or as much mm-hmm. attention as maybe it should have for for one reason or another. And we can talk about why that might have been. We are going to go in order from top to bottom in the SEC West standings. Of course, that means we are going to start with the Arkansas Razorbacks. And Mark, why don't you hit lead off? What you got for Arkansas? Well, um, I think. You know, when Peyton Stovall was injured, okay, he was, you know, supposed to be one of one of their one of their better hitters. And um and then what it was I guess in April when they he was part of that rash of injuries that they had, right? And then um Peyton Holt stepped in. And not only did he step in and play a great second base, he ended up hitting three ninety-two. Um you know, that, that's that's pretty good for a, quote, backup player who was just going to be a, you know, kind of a, a role player, you know, a bench player. 
and then he got his opportunity and, and boy, did he make the most of it. I mean, uh, 392, um, you know, on base, you know, 489 slugged 581. I mean, those are some serious numbers from a guy that was, you know, you know, putting it nicely, you know, just not really expected, you know, to, to, to have a breakthrough season. So, so I always love those kind of stories, you know, the underdog, the guy who gets the opportunity and then seizes it. And, and Peyton Holt's a great example of that. Yeah. It struck me as a situation where, you know, Peyton Holt gets his chance on the field after Stovall goes down. And, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but I just think this is what the way competitors think mm-hmm. is that Peyton Holt got his chance and, and went, well, this is my job now. I'm better than him. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and like, again, I don't mean that as like a cynical thing or that he was, you know, he was the Tanya Harding to Nancy Kerrigan or anything like mm-hmm. that. It was just that, you know, that he just thinks, hey, I, I can I could be out there helping the team like I'm ready for this. You know, I'm I'm the best guy for this job. And because and you mm-hmm. kind of have to believe that. Right. And so yeah. it kind of struck me as that because he just came out like a house of fire. And mm-hmm. so that's that's a great call there. My story was that Arkansas continues to be continues to have such a high hit rate on their transfers, especially on the position player side. You look at their best bats this year, Jace Borofin, transfer. And okay, mm-hmm. he had one year where it didn't quite work. It, it took two years basically after getting over from Oklahoma to, for it to click, but it did click in a big way. Jared Wagner, transfer. Tavian Josenberger, transfer. And so, look, I, you know, and th- there are some folks out there that I think look at that and go like, well, where are their homegrown superstars? Like, where's their Andrew Benintendi? you know, et cetera, et cetera. And I think, first of all, I think that's kind of silly because Kendall Diggs had a really nice year. Right. Um, so, but I, I think it's just silly in general because it's like, why does, what does it really matter? If you, if you, if you're able to recruit talented players, like, yes, it'd be great if you got all your best players through high school recruiting and you were able to keep them on campus and develop them. And it would be great if you could still do that. Like it's mm-hmm. 2008. Right. Um, but we're living in a different world. And as long as we're living in a different world, you have to do things differently. And Arkansas just continues to play the game the way it needs to be played in 2023 and beyond. And, and they're doing it in terms of hit rate on transfers. And I've not done the research on this. And if uh, I hate to even say this on air, because like, then it means it kind of puts some pressure to maybe actually look at it. We'd have to figure out how we define hit rate on transfers. But I would mm-hmm. guess if, if we actually did the work on that, that their rate would be higher than just about anybody else in the country, if not the highest in, in the country in terms of guys come in through the portal and just become stars. And part of the reason why that's hard to gauge, by the way, and this is me on a tangent, is that not every transfer is someone you're looking at as like, this guy's going to be a superstar, right? right? Like I look at Brandon Garcia for Texas A&M. Like he ended up having a pretty big role for them ultimately, but mm-hmm. they were looking for him to be a lefty relief arm. And he was exactly that. Like they were never looking at him as this guy's going to be an all SEC starting pitcher. Like, no, that's not, (laughs) that's not they were looking for. So that's why it's hard to kind of gauge what Mm -hmm. success equals, but, but long story short, Arkansas doing a really good job in the portal. Um, You know, they've got some, some other guys coming in this year and I'm just kind of at the point now where I just assume if Arkansas is bringing in a position player transfer, that they're going to be pretty doggone good because the proof is the proof is in the pudding as they say. Yeah, I mean the the culture that's been established in that program. I mean that's, I mean th- it's the model, okay, that everyone wants to get. And I know they hadn't won won the had the final dog pile or however you want to put it, but they're they're just so close every year. And I mean that that's that model of consistency. And you know when and when you're able to bring in new players and 
seamlessly, you know, include them in, in that culture. Uh, it just, it just speaks to what Dave Van Horn has built there. Yeah. Just, just quickly cleaning up some of it, you know, they, they bring in, you know, the big name is Wahila, Wahiwa Aloy from Sac State, shortstop out there who was really, really good as a freshman. They brought in a couple guys from Missouri, Ross Lovich and Ty Wilmsmeyer. They've got Hudson White from Texas Tech, Jack Wagner, who started at Kansas, then went to Tarleton State and is now at Arkansas. Um, so just just assume those guys are going to be good. Um, you know, and, and I, I don't think they're maybe quite done. You know, there are a couple guys that's still out there that I think would be pretty decent fits for Arkansas, but, but we'll have to yeah. uh, we'll have to see. OK, uh, moving on to LSU. Maybe you've heard of them. Uh, the national champions. And this one was kind of hard because look, we, you know, there are no not, undertold stories here, right? <laughs> not only did they win the national title, but this was the team we spent all season kind of looking at under a microscope. Yeah. So they kind of, you know, in a couple of different ways, there's no such thing as an undertold story here, but I will go mm-hmm. with the, the resurgence season that Cade Beloso had. And mm-hmm. this story is not undertold because he became something of a sensation in Omaha but even before he really got hot in Omaha and was, was carrying the team a little bit, he just had a really nice season. He batted 324, got on base at a 462 clip, hit 16 home runs. And that's pretty impressive on its own, you know, if you, if you take that totally out of context. But this is a guy who, if you'd, if you'd asked me to predict kind of what Cade Beloso's season would be this year based on recent results, I would have been like, I don't know. I mean, he might be a nice bench bat. You know, he's got a little bit of juice. You how know, is he going to get gets, into the lineup? That, right. That how, how, yeah. Like, you know, as a first base, first base DH type, like that's, mm-hmm. you know, kind of a tough nut to crack when you're in a lineup that has other, first of all, has Trey Morgan at first base. Okay. That's mm-hmm. problem number one, but also just has some other, frankly, DH types, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and he not only got his way into the lineup, but became a star, but, you know, in 2022, he was, for all intents and purposes, missed the whole year with injury. And then even if you go back to 2021, I mean, he played in 51 games, but he hit 226 and had three home runs. You know, so there was really, and he had a good freshman year, but that was back in 2019. So there was really very little evidence that he was going to have this kind of bounce back. And, you know, he, he falls pretty far down the list of the reasons why you'd probably name that LSU won a national title, but he is on that list because he mm-hmm. gave that lineup a lot of depth, a lot of length um, yeah. to what was already a deep, long lineup. Um, I certainly just, I just did not see that coming at the start of the year. Yeah. And it's, it's a similar story for me. I think what I'll do is I'll expand it. It's that LSU had program guys, right? Not elite recruits, not elite draft picks, not transfer portal guys, but they had a core of, you know, Beloso, Dugas, um, Malazzo, um, you know, those that you really weren't expecting a ton out of. And they, they certainly elevated that team and, and were big, a big part of the toughness that LSU seemed to never be out of a game, right? They were always, always ready to, to come back and, and, and that explosive offense. And, the, and they played better defensively than a lot of us expected because they weren't that good, you know, fielding-wise a year ago. And, and you know, 2023, they were, they were pretty good everywhere, and they were great in a lot of places. And um, I think a, a lot of that is, is we talked about culture and we talked about 
fitting all of these moving parts in there, a lot of big egos. And, and I think having that veteran presence that, that have been in the program and, and knew the ups and the downs. And, and I, I think that, that played a big role in helping, helping that coaching staff navigate LSU through all this, handling all these expectations, handling all this talent and, and being able to, to, to reach their, their common goal. That moves us on down to Auburn, the third place team in the West. Uh, Mark, what do you got for the Tigers, this version of the Tigers? Yeah, I think, you know, Tommy Vale would, would be the guy for me. Uh, he was supposed to be a left-handed specialist out of the bullpen. And then he got a chance to pitch in midweek. Then he got a chance to start in midweek and was just phenomenal. Had a couple of games where he, I don't know if it was no hit or no run, certainly. And and they continued to elevate his role, and he continued to to rise to the occasion. And this is not a guy who overpowers you with, 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 his, with his stuff. He just knows how to pitch. And it, it's, it's another message that it, sometimes it isn't all about velo. It isn't all about spin rate. If you know what you're doing out there and you have good – you know, you're, you're able to, to miss bats. Um, you can, you can get by with, with, le- if you get the opportunity, you can get by with less than spectacular stuff. You know, the problem is how do you, how do you even get on a roster these days unless you throw, you know, 92, but anyway, th- this, you know, th- this shows that there's still a place for a pitchability, especially a lefty. Yeah. And what was fun about him too, is he was a pitchability lefty that threw mostly fastballs. Like it yeah. wasn't even like, it wasn't yeah. even like, Hey, this guy's got a nasty change. Although, you know, right. he, he had other stuff, but it was just like, right. he's just throwing a bunch of fastballs up in the zone that nobody seems to be able to hit. Like it was just kind of a fun, it played a up. fun deal. Yeah. Um, much like how you built on my Cade Beloso point by talking about program guys, I will build on yours because I, I do mm-hmm. think you and I were both fascinated and, and the college baseball world writ large was fascinated by how is Auburn doing this on the mound? And I think it's important to kind of go back to the original reason why this was so impressive. And that's that they didn't have Joseph Gonzalez all season. And he, you and I previewed the season back in January, early February and said, look, you, for Robert on the mound, you've got Joseph Gonzalez and then you just got to build it out. Well, they, they had him for one game mm-hmm. and then there was a lot of like fits and starts in his recovery. And he just ultimately never got back on the mound. And so we, we, we focused a lot, understandably so, on what is actually going right. Like we talked about Vale, we talked about Herber Holes, we talked about Will Cannon in the bullpen, so on and so forth. Um, but at, after a certain point, we just kind of stopped about ta- stopped talking about the Joseph Gonzalez part of it. And I get that because at some point that's not important anymore. But now I would like to circle back and say, hey, remember how they had this guy who pitched for Team USA who – some of the people around that team when I was, you know, working on team USA stuff last summer told me like, Hey, his stuff isn't the best, but he was actually our best guy. And in terms of like, Hey, can you get out? And they didn't, Auburn didn't have that guy. And now he's, you know, coming back in 2024. And I don't know what his health status is with that. I mean, I guess we'll have to see and and see how that goes, but um, now, you know, now they'll have him back next year and maybe they'll, they'll be able to just run it back and, and maybe it'll be as good as it was before um but but certainly auburn i would say greatly overachieved on the mound with uh some tough circumstances that came from from gonzalez being out 
Yeah, well said. Uh, okay, so we're going to go to Alabama, and I'm going to bring up Tommy Seidel and just the idea that he had a season that I don't think it would have been reasonable for anyone to predict for him. Now, he's old and physical, and that that helps, but like it only helps so much, right? Because if if just being old and physical was like the key to everything, then, you know... Then that it wouldn't be quite, but it's just not right. Uh, you have to have some, you know, some sort of something beyond that. And but Seidel's a guy who started his career at Harvard, and in part because of the pandemic and the Ivy League didn't, you know, cancel 2020, didn't play in 2021, all that stuff just really didn't do much at Harvard. And I remember when they took when Alabama took Seidel in the portal, just kind of being like, huh, interesting. <laughs> uh, okay. I don't, I don't know about that. Um, and he had a nice year in 2022 hit 302 you know swiped 12 bases and it was like okay this is a nice contact hitter with some speed um you know plays the outfield well and then he comes back out this year and hits 355 and gets on base at a 456 clip and you know has 20 total extra base hits including nine home runs and, and really towards the end of the year as they went through all the adversity they went through with the coaching change and then made a run in the postseason. In a lot of ways, he felt like the heart and soul of the team a little bit. And considering he's only been there a couple of years, he transferred from somewhere else. Yeah. You know, he could be some of these players' dads. Um, <laughs> that's a joke, of course. But that that's not an obvious thing for him to have emerged as the heart and soul of the team. And it, maybe I'm off on that. I'm not in that clubhouse. But that just kind of is the way it played to me was that, that he was a heart and soul piece of that team. And so mm -hmm. uh, I think he deserves a lot of credit for getting, helping get Alabama where they ended up getting. Yeah. It's a good call. I think I'm going to go with Alton Davis the second. And here's why we all remember when Alabama kind of turned it on. Okay. Um, and that was after the coaching change, that was when they really started playing their best ball. However, there were, a few weeks before then, you know, they went to Missouri and got a sweep and they start, they were playing a little bit better. They, they had trouble at LSU, but a big part of that was having Davis at the end of the game that they could trust a lead to. Cause remember they were the team early in the conference season that kept losing close games, rubber games. Okay. They, they lose two out of three and that one game was, was either way. And they typically led, late in the game and just couldn't couldn't close it out and then he emerged freshman big arm you know not sure you know how, how polished a pitcher he is but he really competed and he had really good stuff and and as he continues to mature um you know this is a guy with a huge upside he, he could be you know he could be an elite elite arm and unlike Seemingly everyone else Alabama was going to return this year. He he is actually returning. So he did not hit the portal. So they will have him back for his sophomore year. And I, I kind of expect him to to move into a starting role. Uh, they, you know, he, he certainly got this. He's got starter stuff. So I, I think he's got to prove to you he can't. And then, you know, if he can't, then you, you still got a pretty good, pretty good weapon at the end of the game. So, so he, he a great freshman season for him and um, a, kind of a, a building block as Alabama has a, you know, roster turnover as they head into next year. 
It's a great call. And I remember talking to when I was doing, I did a few pieces during the year of like anonymous coaching feedback on teams. And when I talked to the coach, I talked to about Alabama, he said, you know, the Davis kid, that's at the time, nobody knew who he was. So we just called him the Davis kid, the Davis kid left-handed, like he's going to be a real dude at some point. I just don't think he's ready. And that some point ended up being, Oh, I don't know about three weeks after I talked to him. (laughs) So, you know, uh, it, it came fast. Once it started happening for him, it it came pretty fast. So yeah, that's, that is a good call there. Hey everyone. We're going to take a quick break from our discussion to hear a couple ads from our sponsors. Um, okay, that moves us to Texas A&M. Uh, mm-hmm. Mark, this yeah. is your uh, your leadoff on this one. Yeah, I'll go with Johnston. The uh, the sometimes closer, sometimes reliever, sometimes starter. And he kind of did whatever the team needed and sometimes kind of to his detriment. I mean, he's he's pitching in relief on Friday and then coming back and starting, you know, on, on, on Sunday. And, that you know, that's not the easiest thing in the world to do. Um, but he was able to do it and, and was pretty effective. He had great, good strikeout to innings pitch numbers. I mean, just a, just a really competitive kid out there. And obviously A&M had all kinds of issues just filling innings. And, and sometimes they had to do things they really didn't want to do, like use him, <laughs> use, use a starter in relief um, in the same weekend. And, and that's, you know, but when you've got a guy who's who can who can do that and, and still be effective, it gives you a great weapon, and it just goes to show that you know if what what can this kid do, you know, when he has the opportunity to really get in a routine and and figure it out, right, and be able to to know, uh, hey, I, I'm going to pitch on Saturday, and you know, seven days later I get the ball again or whatever it is. I, I think that that would have been really interesting had they had that luxury. How would A&M's season, you know, could, could it have been a little different? I will go with Hunter Haas being the impact guy he was kind of on both ends, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, when they brought him in, I looked at it and said, okay, that that addition makes sense because A&M was not very good defensively on the infield in 2022. Now they got to Omaha in spite of it, but that was a real problem for them. And Haas was known as a guy when he was at Arizona State who could really pick it. You know, I, I remember doing some Pac-12 preview stuff for when I was, you know, in, in my previous job. And uh, I had some some people around the league tell me, like, look, you know, he plays third base for Arizona State, but he might be the best shortstop in the league. <laughs> you know, um, at the time, Arizona State had a very good defensive infield. So, you know, they were still moving some pieces around. But um, so I thought, OK, he's going to come in. He's going to shore up the infield defense or help shore up the infield defense. And he's serviceable with the bat. Like maybe he hits 300, maybe he hits double digit doubles. Maybe he swipes a bag, a bag or two, but he ends up hitting 323. He ends up, you know, 50, almost 50 walks, 49 walks in the year, more than, more than his strikeout total. And then I think most impressively is, is he ended up 14 doubles and 10 home runs. Like he impacted Mm -hmm. the ball a lot more than I thought he would. And, And look, that's, you know, I don't think he projects as a power bat at the next level. And he, he got right. drafted pretty high this past week. So congratulations, you know, kudos to him. And, but I don't think the team that drafted him is looking at him as a guy, Hey, let's, let's put this guy at the top of the order and he can, he can run the ball out of the yard. So, mm-hmm. But still as a college hitter, that was a lot of what A&M needed. And for much of the season, you and I talked and until, you know, Laviolette got going late, 
and you know Boast had his moments late and Werner had his moments late but for most of the season it was Moss and Moss and Haas in that mm-hmm. lineup and that was what you could bank on and I think we saw that coming from Moss I'm I'm not so convinced and actually I I am convinced that we did not see it coming with Hunter Haas but he was mm-hmm. huge for them in the lineup and defensively like he lived up to his end of the bargain really all around yeah yeah he had a big year all right so now we're going to move on to uh mississippi state um so hang with us mississippi state and old miss fans uh we've got some some positives for your teams here and for mississippi state i think it's interesting that aaron nixon kind of figured it out mm-hmm. like in a season when things just were really bad on the mound for for mississippi state 701 overall era 954 ERA in conference play. You know, he he missed some time with injury, so he wasn't, you know, maybe things are slightly better. Maybe they pick up another win or two if they have him in the bullpen earlier mm-hmm. in the season when the bullpen was, well, it sputtered all year, but was really, really sputtering. But he came on late, ends up with a 266 ERA in 20 to third innings, struck out 24, held opponents to a 159 batting average, only gave up one long ball in those 20 and a third innings. Like, he really became a guy for them. And actually the day we're recording this on Tuesday, he actually signed as a free agent with the Yankees earlier today. So the, you know, the Yankees saw something there, but when he was at his best at Texas, it was a guy with a really, really good breaking ball with, you know, above average fastball velocity. And he wasn't, you know, he had, he had a tough 2022 where it seemed like things just kind of got away from him at Texas. And then at Mississippi state, the numbers are good, but his stuff, his stuff wasn't quite as sharp as it was when he first, arrived on a scene at Texas and was on team USA a couple summers ago. Mm-hmm. It wasn't quite, it wasn't quite that, but he found a way to, to make it work and his stuff was better. His command was a lot better and now it's paid off with him getting a shot in pro ball. So it was, it was kind of cool to see him come back. I thought there was a, I kind of thought there was a scenario where things really went bad for him, you know, going into the sec and facing that level of hitter and, and actually ended up being a nice comeback story that he was able to, to get things back on track and, and be an effective arm uh, for Mississippi state down the stretch. Yeah, that's a good call. I'll go with Cade Smith and, you know, he was expected to be the the Friday night ace and the anchor of the rotation and then he got hurt and Mississippi state just, I mean, by the time, he came back and, and had his innings up. I mean, the season was almost <laughs> almost decided by that point. But he gave them, you know, he came in and, and, and pitched well, um, and they continued to stretch him out and stretch him out. And he can, you know, and he, he threw on Friday against the best guys in the in the country. And and he was able to to hold his own for the most part and keep Mississippi State in those games. Now they didn't win enough of them, obviously, but but I don't think you, you put that on him. I think he, he gave them what, you know, what, what he had. And, and for the most part, it, it was, it was enough. Um, and certainly gave them the type of, um, you know, that he was able to match up, I guess, with, with some of these elite guys that, that we've talked about all year. That leaves us with one team and that's the yeah. Ole Miss rebels. Yeah. Um, and are you, is this you lead off or me, Mark? I lost track. Uh, I can do it. Um, that's I'm you. Go, Cause I, I had I had Nixon leading off last one. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I'm going to, I'm going to go with Rivas. Um, similar. I mean, he was a guy who stayed in the rotation all year. Um, in a, in, and that's saying something at Ole Miss because they did not have a lot of consistency. Um, and he was able to, you know, he was pitching on Sunday 
and then continues to progress and pitch better and is pitching on Saturday. And, and eventually he's, you know, he's their Friday guy, right? And and coming in as a transfer, I don't know that we really expected that. You know, entering the year, we, you know, we'd heard good things, but certainly not going to end up being their, their, their overall best pitcher. Uh, you, you could you could make that argument. And just a guy who, who, who was able to compete and and give give his team a chance and with, with the problems that Ole Miss had on the mound, um, just just to to have that guy who can go out and okay he's going to at least give me five he's he may give me six innings and, and keep me competitive and that was I mean they didn't have enough of that so having that one guy who could do it was was, was huge. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, it, it, two things there. I, I thought in a perfect world, he would be Ole Miss's version of what Lyle Lockhart was for Arkansas a couple of years ago, mm. where, you know, maybe he starts off the year in the rotation against non-conference competition, but by the time you get to the SEC play, he's a, a midweek guy or you know, long relief or just kind of a, mm-hmm. you know, a guy who comes in when your starter gives you three innings and you need somebody to, to bridge the gap. Yeah. And had he been that, I think that would have been a real luxury for Ole Miss because I think he would have been great in that role. But to your point, he ended up having to do a lot more. And mm-hmm. look, some of the numbers aren't pretty, but you know he held opponents under 250 average. He struck out 89 in 68 innings. Like he he did some nice things. And so, like sure, you look at the 6.35 ERA and you're you know you're kind of eh, you know that's that's rough. But th- there were some positives there. So I, and and to your point, he just gave them at some point something they desperately needed, which is just like. You know, for the love of God, someone please go out there and throw five innings, you know. Um, so anyhow, that's, that's a great call. Mine is that it's amazing that in a year when Dylan Cruz or Paul Skeens or Wyatt Langford or Jack Haglione, frankly, don't exist. And I know that's saying a lot, but I guess my point is Kemp Alderman in most years would be on the short list of SEC player of the years and might be the SEC player of the year. Yeah. Like if you, if you read off his stat line to me, 376 average, 440 on base, 709 slug, 19 home runs. If you read that off to me three or four years ago yeah. and you said, here's this guy for Ole Miss, you know, who is a high, is a prospect too. And this is, these are his numbers. I'd be like, okay, that's, that's the SEC player of the year. And like, he really wasn't even on the board. And part of that is because Ole Miss wasn't good. Right. right. But even if they were, if they had Texas A&M's record and had gotten into a regional as a two seed or whatever, like he still wasn't going to be on the board because we just had so many, whether, whether you want to blame the baseballs or the bats or whatever, or you just want to say the talents better than it's ever been in the sec. Cause I think that's mostly what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, but those individual seasons were just so above and beyond what we're used to at the top of the league that, that he ends up kind of getting overlooked for what he did. And he was just, he was one of the best players in the conference and, we shouldn't also overlook the bigger picture story with him, which was that, you know, he only played two years ago because they were kind of desperate for options at some point. And they were like, Hey, let's just, Hey, let's put this big, strong guy in the lineup, yeah. <laughs> you know, and he hits a home run. I think it was his first at bat. Maybe yeah. he hit a home run. It's certainly so his first game. Yeah. yeah. And you know, and he, he didn't get much playing time after that, just generally speaking, but that was all he did. And then last year he had a nice year on the national mm-hmm. title team, but he was by no means, the second or third most important bat in that lineup. He just had a mm-hmm. nice year, but this year he just becomes a total superstar. And it, it because of the team record and, and because of what I've talked about with so many other players putting up massive numbers, he ends up kind of being a little bit of a, 
a mystery man from that regard. So um, mm-hmm. he deserves credit for the season he had because it was an outstanding one. And, you know, obviously it's um, in a year like Ole Miss had, it's easy to overlook guys that have seasons like that. Yeah. I mean, he's a guy with a lot of raw tools who's, who's worked his way into what he what he became. You know, a lot of times you see these guys and it, they make it look easy because they're so big, strong and fast. But he was big, strong and fast as a freshman. And it just didn't he wasn't he wasn't there yet. So it just, you know, a lot of it, you, you give credit to him. You give credit to the coaching staff for building, turning him into, you know, a, a professional player. And I mean, he's got a, he's got a chance to make a lot of money, play, play this game a long time. Yep. No doubt about that. Uh, Mark, that's going to put a bow on our look back at the 2023 season. If you if you did not listen to the SEC East version of this podcast, uh, go and do so. It's still out there. Go ahead and give it a give it a listen at this evergreen content, as they say in the business, because we're just taking a look back at last season. And uh, I guess we'll go ahead and tease a little bit of what we've got coming up in the coming weeks. You know, we're we're not going to stop doing the podcast. We're not going to a a periodic schedule. The, the plan is, and I'll put an asterisk next to that because things like last week happened where the hotel Wi-Fi just wasn't going to cooperate with me. And so we had to skip a week. So those kind of things happen. However, generally speaking, we are going to, to give you an episode every week throughout the off season. And, uh, because Mark and I are just experts at, you know, I mean, Mark and I could sit here and talk about, you know, paint colors probably and get 40 minutes out of it. Cause we're chatty, but, um, but we do have some interesting ideas moving forward. We, we want to talk to the new coaches in the league. Um, so we don't have those scheduled out yet. I can't tell you when that will be, but soon I would say you will hear from the new coaches around the league. We want, we want to do that and kind of introduce those who don't know them to them. And, and even for Mark and I, just to get a feel for, for who they are as, as coaches. So we're going to do that. We will also recap summer ball in some form. We don't know what form that will take, but we'll take a look at guys who were on the national team, guys who were on the Cape, some guys who were in smaller leagues because, oh, by the way, like there's a lot of focus on the national team in the Cape and, and I, I, I get it. And I'm part of that. I, you know, saw both of those things in the last two or three weeks, but you know, Charlie Condon's big breakout came after a summer in the Northwoods. Um, so there are other leagues out there that SEC players are in and having good summers in and will be springboards next season for, for something bigger. So, those are, are worth our time as well. So we'll, we'll kind of, we'll spread out and, and we'll try to rope in as much as, as we can from as many summer leagues as we can. And, and we will also probably a little bit later than that in this, or, you know, around that same time, I guess, do a transfer portal recap episode. And we'll probably try to do some sort of game to, to make that a little more listenable as opposed to just reading off lists of names. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll draft all transfer portal teams then and, and do some sort of thing where we, you know, we, we have a contest to, to see whose team performs better in the 2024 season. I, you know, I don't know, uh, but we'll find some fun way to, to talk about uh, the, the, the transfer portal movement we've seen in the SEC. And if, if you've been keeping up with the, all the transfer portal updates I've put on the site, you know yeah. that there has been quite a bit of movement in that regard. I, I continually, every time I do one, I kind of think like, well, you know, we're kind of slowing down. And then it's like every week, it's just, there's a whole, I end up having to do them like every four days because it's just moving yeah. a lot quicker than I, than I anticipated well, things moving. Yeah. The exits will slow now. Yes. But, but, but the, uh, the additions will not. Yes. Yeah. With the, with the portal closed for underclass players, mm-hmm. non-grad transfers, I should say like, right. yes, that, that part has slowed, but that almost makes it harder in some ways because now you get the, uh, the sneaky grad transfer. Mm-hmm. Where there's some guys who 
don't show up in the portal until they've already picked a place or some guys just don't really show up in the portal in the same way because grad transfers work differently. Um, So you'll have guys who just kind of randomly show up and you're like, Oh, where did this guy come? You know Um, Mm -hmm. anyway, so that that's a challenge, but we will, we will uh, take on that challenge and, and bring you a transfer portal recap episode at some point. And then we'll be really kind of into the, by that point we'll be knocking on the door of fall ball and you know, the sec start tends to start fall ball pretty late because you know, warm weather. That's better. Um, so we'll have a few weeks in between the summer and the fall where we'll maybe stretch out our, you know, imagination muscles a little bit and, and bring you some, some abstract stuff or some different stuff. And then frankly, I'm kind of looking forward to, uh, to doing that. Cause I feel like that's when, when, when folks like Mark and I really shine is when we have mm-hmm. to get a little weird. So we'll see what form that takes, but for now, I appreciate you listening to us all season. I appreciate you listening to these last two episodes to put a bow on the season. Mark and I are very much looking forward to coming at you week after week throughout the off season until we get back on the highway to Hoover next February, which look, it's a long time from now, but we'll be here before you know it. That's just the way life works. Um, You know, teachers told me as I was a kid growing up that, you know, the older you get, the faster time goes. And I just thought all my teachers were idiots. And now it turns out that they were, they were unfortunately right. So um, here we are. Um, so I guess that's going to do it for this episode. We will be back again next week with a new episode of the highway to Hoover podcast. Thank you as always to Mark for joining me. Thank you to Brock's gap brewing company. I failed to mention them at the top of the show. Thank you to Brock's gap brewing company for sponsoring this and every episode of highway to Hoover. Really appreciate our partnership with our friends over there at Brock's gap in Hoover. And thank you to you for listening. We'll talk to y'all soon. The Highway to Hoover podcast is part of the SiriusXM Sports Podcast Network. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts.